0: podcast, Paying for Success, a conversation about education, we will focus on the financial aspect of education and how wealth and socioeconomic status affect the quality of education and opportunities associated with it. More importantly, through personal reflection, podcast analysis, documentary, and an informative article, we will discuss the significance of the quality of education and its present-day effects.
1: We'll analyze the role race plays in the socioeconomic status or SES of certain communities asking our audiences to consider their positions and roles within our current education system specifically how this role has transformed into an underlying factor in determining who is successful and who is not we must then ask how do we make aware the privileges of some white communities and their effects on the disadvantaged communities
2: hello we're your hosts
0: Jacqueline Caro Amanda Martilla
2: And uh, Christopher Yin, we're undergraduate students at UCSD taking the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion course, Latin American Studies, and U.S. Liberation, taught by Professor Amy Kennermore. We will begin with discussing our own personal experiences within the public education system.
0: So, Amanda and Christopher, I feel like it's only right to start by reflecting on our own experiences within the public education systems. What school districts are you from?
2: Uh, So for me personally, I grew up uh, in two different school districts. I originally grew up in uh, Los Angeles, so I was in the LAUSD school district. And then um, for middle school and beyond that, I actually moved to Temple City. Uh, So these were actually two very different experiences for me. Um, So for LAUSD it was mainly, um, I was surrounded mainly by um, Hispanics and some Koreans. Well, in Temple City, I was actually surrounded uh, mostly by a Chinese-based community. Um, If I were to talk about my experiences, I would definitely say I had more uh, post my move because Temple City was actually, the community around it was a little bit more well-off. So when it came to programs and opportunities, they actually had more available. Uh, For example, there was one where uh we got to go on a trip throughout the different missions in california and we went all the way up to san uh sacramento and back down so i guess that's a memorable memorable experience for me
1: and um i went to school in lake elsinore so the lake elsinore unified school district um for k through 12 and Um, it's a relatively small school district, um, with less funding than some of the other school districts in the surrounding areas, but overall, like, I feel like I was afforded a lot of opportunities, which I'm grateful for, for example, my high school, um, did have the AP program, they had IB, and also there was a track for, um, Health Academy, so overall, I feel like it wasn't, um, like a lack of opportunity there. What
0: about you, Jackie? So I'm actually born and raised here, from here in San Diego, um, Chula Vista more specifically, and which is around 15 minutes from the border. So I grew up in a pretty diverse elementary school. So I grew up going to the Chula Vista Elementary School District and then later the Sweetwater Union High School District. Um, I also was, I looking back now at my experience, I can see how um, going to these schools um, and, and in these districts, I was offered many opportunities that I may not have found elsewhere um, just because I can see how having programs such as dual immersion or um, gate uh, definitely impacted my um, school career, I guess.
1: mentioned these programs Jackie which programs um, like dual immersion or gate were you involved in and would you say that these programs opened a lot of opportunities for you
0: yes um from what I can remember about elementary school I the this dual immersion program was definitely like a coveted program I remember my parents getting up early like on a work day to go stand in line to get a lot. It was like a lottery system to get a ticket to enroll me into this program because it was so highly coveted. Um, Cause all these parents wanted their children to learn, um, grow up bilingual, which essentially they knew which would be an advancement to their future, to their careers, I guess. And I also was a part of the GATE program. Um, I remember being tested like from an early age and uh, once, when I was accepted into this program, it was a big deal because then I was able to go to all these after-school programs that I probably wouldn't be able to find anywhere else. Um, it was just definitely like a creative outlet, I guess I would say. Um, what about you, Amanda? Amanda?
1: well yeah you bringing up the gate program actually like causes me to really think about how gate was at my school and for our listeners if your school didn't have that it stands for the gifted and talented education program and baby test in third grade um and the test isn't like normal questions like math and reading it's more like patterns and it's multiple choice and you're trying to choose the right one so it's more like an iq test and if you pass, you're accepted into the GATE program. It affects um, like what classes you're sorted into later. Um, for my school, like they had GATE cluster classes. And there are also different programs associated with that. So passing that test opened opportunities for you.
2: okay so uh looking back for you guys uh can you see how although these programs are designed with good intentions uh when uh do you feel that disproportionately the students of lower socioeconomic backgrounds are often left behind?
0: um definitely looking back um at my experience i can see how being involved in this program has definitely created some kind of uh, social awareness that I don't wanna say that I was better than other kids, but it definitely left me with that feeling that I was kinda of like smarter, which in a sense is kind of, was really bad for me because once I got to like college when everyone was like super smart, I felt like really dumb for thinking that. Um, but yeah, what about you, Amanda? Yeah, I definitely think that people were left
1: behind because I remember in middle school, like I'd have, um, I was in the advanced track and I'd have teachers that were like, oh, I can only teach advanced classes because I don't want to teach like the general ed classes. Like, oh, they're like so slow. And the teachers like didn't make, like didn't really even try to hide the fact that they thought less of like the lower achieving students. And that just kind of stuck with me because I was like, why would these students be left behind like just because they're not engaged? Because that's something that you do in third grade. So why shouldn't like an eight year old or a nine year old be written off that early? Um, And then what you're saying about like kind of thinking like, oh, like I'm smarter than everyone else. That's really interesting because I kind of relate to that. And also um, there's this thing called like the Pygmalion effect or the Rosenthal effect, which is like if you think highly of yourself and you people like treat you like with the high expectation, then you're going to like rise to that expectation, whereas, f- whereas if people have like lower expectations of you, you're going to like change that lower expectation and it's like tied to your self-esteem. So yeah, definitely, I can just see where that's tracing back and where lower socioeconomic students are left behind, not only the opportunities are afforded, but also the way they're treated. And do you have anything to add to that, Chris?
2: Uh, Definitely. For my area, actually a lot of the programs that were offered to students were actually privately owned tutoring businesses. Um, Even though the school programs did offer a lot, it definitely wasn't uh, as much in scope relative to these programs. Um, While it would also be an issue of socioeconomic backgrounds, a lot of them were mainly uh, Chinese-owned tutoring businesses that catered exclusively the Chinese students, since they were such a majority in our, or in, in the community. And um, even though uh, it doesn't selectively filter out students, it's definitely an issue where uh, many, um, many families will have to pay for these, and these are quite expensive, and they actually reproduce college students because they have a lot of college uh, volunteers that come back and that kind of helps the students who are involved in these programs also um, rise to attend these colleges as well.
0: The New York Times podcast series, Nice White Parents, analyzes the power and role white parents have in our public education system. Chana Jofi-Walt knows through personal experience as a white parent herself, how school tours have become much like a business pitch, where administration tries to sell the school to the white parent. Jofi-Walt investigates the case of the New York School of International Studies, SIS, and the many changes that came with the integration of
3: white parents. Segregation is the most effective way to close the gap in achievement between black and white students. But it did not want to mandate racial integration through zoning or school placements. The city was trying to make integration happen through choice, hoping to lure white families into segregated schools.
0: The School of International Studies prior to 2015 was in bad shape. Its sixth grade class had only around 30 students with its ability to accommodate for 100. The school was also home to primarily Black, Latino, and Middle Eastern students from poor or working class families. This all changed with the idea from white parent Rob Hansen to integrate a dual language French program, which eventually attracted many other white families to enroll their children into the School of International Studies. Because funding for this program was done separately from the school's parent-teacher association, the black and brown student body was left underfunded as all these funds being raised were put towards the dual language program. It then becomes clear why parents are often oblivious to the power and
3: role they play within our public education system. What is true about almost all of these reforms is that when we look for what's broken, for how our schools are failing, we focus on who they're failing. Poor kids, black kids, and brown kids. We ask, why aren't they performing better? Why aren't they achieving more? Those are not the right questions. There's a powerful force that is shaping our public schools, arguably the most powerful force. It's there even when we pretend not to notice it, like on that school tour. If you wanna understand why our schools aren't better, that's where you have to look. You have to look at white parents,
0: we must analyze the role in which race plays in opening doors for opportunities of success in these students' career paths. As the socioeconomic status of these white families tend to be higher than the statuses of the black and brown communities, the white students are offered more opportunities like the dual language program, obtaining a better education and essentially a road to success.
2: How many of you have or are currently enrolled in an American public school within the past 70 years, please raise your hand, (laughs) every single one of you have been tracked.
1: The The clip I just played was from a TED talk by Alan Chen. He said that every one of us have been tracked. Now what is tracking, you may ask. Tracking is a process that essentially sorts students into three categories, below average, average, and above average. This clip from Waiting for Superman, which is a documentary led by education expert Jeffrey Canada in 2010, will tell you a little more about it.
2: Emily is probably not gonna drop out, and it's very unlikely she'll go to prison. But her test scores are low, which means the stakes for her next year are high. Many families and their children are unaware that their academic future will be decided by a school official who will place them on a track Tracking
3: is often determined
2: by test results, but research shows that students are also tracked by arbitrary or subjective factors like neatness, politeness, and obedience to authority. Lower tracks have lower expectations and often worse teachers, so students placed on lower tracks often find they are running fast but falling behind. As the years progress, it becomes increasingly difficult for those kids to ever catch up.
1: Tracking seems like a good idea at first. Defendants of tracking will say that it prevents advanced students from being slowed down by their average and below average peers, and that tracking is necessary to sort students into high-skilled and low-skilled jobs. However, in this day and age, we are beyond tracking, but it is still part of our education system. This can in some ways be connected to Hall's West and the Rest discourse because it demonstrates the relationship between knowledge and power. I say this because the advocates for tracking are parents of high achieving students and typically people of greater socioeconomic status or SES. This also connects to Jackie's piece about the nice white parents because they were the ones who had the voice and the say in determining the shape of the education system. This led to more opportunities and roads to success for them that reproduced their privilege. Additionally. Socioeconomic status is connected to education because school funding is largely determined by property value. This means that predominantly wealthy areas are able to invest more in their schools. As we discussed earlier, they are are able to offer more classes like APs and extracurricular activities that positively affect their students. Meanwhile, schools in less affluent areas do not have the resources necessary to give all of their students the same quality of education. They often resort to more authoritative teaching styles where children are taught to obey their superiors more than they are taught skills like critical thinking. This creates an educational apartheid, according to Kozul, because despite the ruling in Brown versus Board of Education, unofficial segregation still exists within the U.S.'s schooling system. And going back to the idea of high-stakes tests, like the one that I took in the third grade to get into GATE. Higher socioeconomic status acts like a head start. One way we can see this, and this is also something that Jeffrey Canada talked about in Waiting for Superman, is in preschools. Not everybody has the ability to enroll their kids in preschools, and if they do, not all preschools are equal. And we know this. um, In fact, um, in some uh, richer areas, they have what are known as baby ivies, Um, which are really high-end preschools that cost thousands of dollars a month to attend. Um, And this uh, very beginning head start eventually sets the road for college and high-paying jobs. Meanwhile, students that are behind that don't have preschool and don't pass the gate test end up getting tracked lower and are sent to vocational jobs. So as you can see, tracking leads to the reproduction of economic advantage and disadvantage.
2: Hello, now we're going to talk about the Latino struggle for education equity. Uh, The fight against inequality within school systems would have roots leading all the way back to the colonial period. The struggle for educational equality would begin with mission schools where Native Americans were forced or volunteered to join missionaries. They were taught Catholic doctrines, doctrines, the Spanish language and assortment of skills designed to bolster their effectivity as a labor force while missionaries initially attempted to learn Native American traditions and languages. These efforts were dropped due to revolts and uprisings such as the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. Out of fear of Native Americans to using their newly found education to continue insurrections, higher education was discontinued for them. After Mexican independence from Spain, Catholic schools still remain the premier way for education due to economic and political instability in the Mexican government. After the Mexican-American War and continuing on into the 1920s, Anglo-Saxon Protestant education reformers would try to begin a rapid and widespread Americanization movement in pre- previously held Mexican territories. Anti-immigration sentiments would also begin to root leading to segregation between Latino communities and white establishments, which also notably included schools. Additionally, there would be a strict English-only statute in these school districts, and in order to circumvent this, Latino parents with resources had to resort to enrolling their students in Catholic schools or establish their own private schools. Latino children would be placed in Mexican classrooms based upon the color of the law, or customs, so basically uh, legal power was used to deprive these uh, students of equal schooling. Um, White school administrators would justify the segregation stating English language deficiencies, which is really silly when you consider the fact that many Latino students only spoke English. Uh, White parents would also be a driving force against the presence of Latino students within their school districts, stemming from a racial belief and xenophobic beliefs against, quote, dirty and diseased Mexicans, as well as the belief that Latinos were a lower class. Like the initial colonists and missionaries, uh, only basic schooling were open to Latinos, while higher education be reserved solely for white students. Again, this was to keep them as a labor force and not have them rise uh, up in the class structures. Um, Protests would rise as a result of legal and occasionally uh, extra legal practices. Uh, The Kansas City incident would be a marked example where, uh, forgive me if I mispronounce these names, where Marcos de Leon and Victorina Perez would fight to allow their two sons and two other Mexican-American children to attend a white Argentine high school. Due to the fact that there were no real organizations um, that supported uh, civil rights for Latinos at this time, they had to resort to asking the Mexican consul for help. Uh, in the end, the four students were allowed back into the school where they eventually graduated. Romo versus Laird would be the first and only legal case of the 1920s in where Romo, a Mexican-American parent, sued the Tempe, Arizona school district for placing his children in the Tempe Normal Training School where it staffed only student teachers instead of fully trained teachers. Uh, This would be a good example of the inequalities faced where uh, Latino students were not given equitable opportunities to learn. Uh, Judge Joseph S. Jenks agreed that the school board's practice would be essentially segregation as it wasn't giving them equivalent opportunities to attend the regular public schools and that these violated the students' rights. Another notable victory would be Mendez versus the Westminster School District in 1946. This was a class action lawsuit filed by, again, forgive me if I mispronounce these names, Felicitas and Gonzalo Mendez, which demanded an end of segregation in four Southern California schools. In the end, they found that the students' rights rights to equal schooling should be protected. The success of Mendez v. Westminster would lead California to become the first state to end segregation, as well as lay the foundations for Brown v. Board of Education, which would end segregation nationwide. I am now going to play a short audio clip of Sylvia Men- Mendez. Uh, daughter of Felicitas and Gonzalo Mendez, receiving the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom. What inspired me was that my parents fought for me when I was very young. And what they did was they wanted me to know that I was an individual and I was just, that we're all individuals, that we're all human beings and that we're all connected together and that we all have the same rights, the same freedom. and.
0: For our conceptual framework, we chose the text, We Make the Road by Walking, as it captures a conversation between educators Miles Horton and Paulo Freire, as they describe their challenges, inspirations, and overall journeys in reforming and developing more inclusive education systems. This book tells the authentic conversation between the scholars so that no free expression is lost, essentially demonstrating that w- how we make the road by walking. That is, it is through conversation that Freire and Miles are able to begin education reform and social change. Likewise, through the development of this podcast, we hope to start a conversation regarding educational reform. We hope to bring awareness to those of higher socioeconomic status, their privilege, and the opportunities provided to them by the quality of their education. We hope this podcast is an opportunity to voice out the need for equity of education in lower socioeconomic status neighborhoods, with the ultimate goal that one day public education will be equal for all. Both scholars draw from personal experiences of poverty as a source of inspiration for wanting social change. Through Reflection, Favre and Horn recognize the crucial role education plays in developing opportunities for these disadvantaged social classes. In the same way, through a reflection of our own experiences within the public education system, we recognize our privilege of being a part of programs like the Dual Immersion or GATE that have opened several opportunities for success. And so, Prairie and Horn advocate for the leveling of the playing field by establishing programs and schools to educate the less fortunate. The scholars highlight the importance of education reform as education is a way in which people are allowed to become themselves and the more people become themselves, the better the democracy, referring to the significance of the input of the people in the democratic system. The people must understand their needs and roles within the system so that democracy can serve them best. This concept is directly related to the original goal of public school defined by Horace Mann.
3: Which was common schools would make democracy possible. They would bind us to one another, indoctrinate us, give us the skills and tools we need for democratic living. Public schools, he believed, would be the great equalizer.
0: And so it becomes clear the potential for public school when done right. If public school is a tool in which we can better democracy, why isn't equalizing our public education system a national priority?
1: All three of us were fortunate enough to end up here at UCSD, and we recognize the privilege we have to further our education at one of the top public schools in the nation. From this position of relative privilege and opportunity, we feel an obligation to educate others about the inequity currently found in our public education system. Through this podcast, we hope to contribute to the conversation that brings about change so that one day, all students will be given equal opportunities for success. I'm Amanda. I'm Jackie. I'm Chris. And this has been Paying for Success, a conversation
0: about education.